Friends, what follows is not for the faint of heart. We bring you tales of the paranormal, human wickedness, the curious, and the bizarre. Please, if you continue, proceed with caution and an open mind. We are the Queen City Creeps. Hello and welcome to Queen City Creeps, your new favorite podcast for all things true crime, paranormal, and just a little bit weird. Today, it is me, Sarah, joined by Shelby. Hi. And Jennifer. Hey. And we are here to talk about the Sodder children, and I'm really excited. <laughs> and you had to sing that, I obviously. did. I've been super excited about this story. I think it's it's just really interesting, and I'm going to ask an icebreaker question, but I just want to get it out there, but I'm kind of stoked. So I'm stoked for you. I know. Okay, so we were all children at one point. Jennifer no. may or may not remember. Uh, yeah, well. Uh, yeah, I don't remember my childhood, but yes, I was a child at one point. So did you ever wander off as a child or did you ever know anybody that disappeared yes i've wandered off even though i'm not a risk taker as we all know well yeah but you gotta get out of the cult somehow yeah is that <laughs> is that how you busted loose from the cult it's not is so you wandered off at a gas at, station busting out at walmart in the late 90s slash early 2000s you were born in the late 90s. No, I was born in the early 90s. Was okay. the Super Center asking for a friend? Yes. <laughs> Super <Okay>. Center. <laughs> so there's always like those clothing racks, you know, that are circular. And mm-hmm. then you'd always like hide in the middle of them. Me and my brother would. I think that's why they don't have those anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. People like kids always went in that. And then my mom would just wander off getting groceries or we would like just be in the toy aisle. And then my mom would just move on mm-hmm. and assume that. We were behind her. We were never behind her. Ever. And then you have that, like, panic, instant panic of, like, I don't know where my mom is. I don't have a cell phone yet at this rate. Like, you thought what that, do I do? You, you thought that at the time? I don't have a cell phone. What do I do? Well, do I, do? I wasn't really thinking that. But in, like, now, I'm like, well, I didn't know how to contact her. I don't have my own cell phone that I can just call her. Yeah. So, I... But I, they, she did find me. Uh, or I found them. Always. Yeah. Right. I, w- I am the oldest of four, and I was always in charge of making sure we stuck together. Even if that didn't necessarily mean we were with our mom, like, she needed to be able to find all of us together. And my family, we have an age gap of, like, 12 years. It's, like, herding cats constantly. So there's always just, like, there's a panic. And now, as an adult, like, I keep track of Eliza, but my husband is bad to wander. And he'll just go off on his own thing. Like, I'll be pushing the cart. He'll have her. And I'll turn around at fucking high V or something. And they're gone. And So you're terrified. I, I, I have, like, so much anxiety about that. And it kind of makes me want to cry. Like, anytime I'm wandering in, like, the whole food section. And then I'm like, I don't know where my kid is. I don't know where my husband is. I failed as an adult. And, of course, I never bring my cell phone with me. Which is horrible. And yeah, that's so, not wise. Yeah. And, and even if I do, I text him. I'm like, where the fuck are you? Oh, my God. Where's our child? And we're what like, happened? we're the next aisle over. Like, yeah. chill out. He never looks at his phone. He's got, like, no. an Apple Watch. And he's still, like, well, ambivalent. I don't know. Shelby? So I I ran away in the dumbest way possible. <laughs> uh, because I was maybe four years old, something like that. It was with my grandpa. 
four uh, years old. That's a good time to run away. away. There was more story. Calm down. He's a risk taker, Jennifer. I thought it was going to be like a teenager, maybe early teens. No, I wasn't like angsty enough to run away. And it was really easy to run away, too, because it was just like I just told my mom that I was with my dad and told my dad I was with my mom. And I could disappear for weeks and no one had any idea. Oh, wow. That's not running away, though. That's just like, all right. I'll see you when I come back. Goodbye. Yeah, if, as long as you were like you knew you were coming back. Yeah, yes. I didn't. I didn't Eventually. like. I didn't like pack up a knapsack and throw it over my shoulder or anything. Right, like, I wasn't, hobo style. Right, I wasn't moving out or whatever. But mm-hmm. anyway, uh, my grandpa, who was he, he was awesome. Like I, I think I, from what I understand, I was about his great, his favorite grandkid. So we hung out a lot because my mom worked almost an hour and a half away from where he lived. And that's where I'd get dropped off during the day whenever I was young. So they could hang out with me or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we went to the church playground thing to, to play around on the Jesus equipment or whatever. Yeah. Jesus swing. <laughs> yeah. Right. The, well, it was like the Jesus jungle gym, the Jesus oh. gym, if you will. Yeah. So we, we were out there and I loved playing hide and seek back then, but he would always find me and I'm like, this son of a bitch. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to fucking get him. Oh, God. At four? At four, yeah. So the the church was about two blocks from the house that he lived at, and he hit his eyes and was counting, and I went to the house. (laughs) And I hid in the house. Like, I am blocks away and hiding. He's not fucking finding me. Like, no fucking way. So about an hour passes, and I'm like, well, I won, so I can come out now. (laughs) And my grandma's like, I thought you were with your grandpa. And I was like, I was. We were playing hide and seek. And she goes, oh. Oh, no. <laughs> Hold on a second. Like, he's he's been to the house. Like, he's been up there. He has been everywhere. Like, panicking, of course. Yeah, obviously. And I'm sitting there just triumphant as fuck. I'm like, right. I'm like, look at me, old man. <laughs> Thought you got the better of me. No fucking way. You're not going to see my fucking feet sticking out from any of these curtains or anything. I'm a fucking good ass hider. <laughs> And he reminded me of that whenever I was like 19 years old. I'm like, I have apologized for that for 15 years. I can't, <laughs> I can't do any better for you at this point. Oh but, no! Yeah, so I, I am so good at running away. Excellent. I would be so pissed at that little kid. Like, I would have been so pissed at you. Oh, dude, he was. Oh, I'm, I'm so pretty sure until the day he died, he's just like that piece of shit. <laughs> but man, that was a good hiding place. Yeah, I mean. In theory, it's such a great idea, but oh, no. (laughs) In practice, no. Right. Well, again, if you were running from somebody that meant to do you harm or something, you wouldn't go to your house. Yeah. That's a Uh. dumb fucking place to hide, but that's the last place he was going to look for me. Uh. Right, yeah. So when I was, I feel like maybe six, maybe, I got pissed. And here's the thing, is that my stepdad raised me, and he is awesome. He's the coolest guy ever. But I was an asshole, and I would regularly be like, even at a young age, I would just be like, I don't have to listen to you. You're not my dad. You're not my real dad. You're not my real dad. (laughs) I've never met my real dad, but it's fine. I know it ain't you. I know it ain't you. I remember (laughs) my mom marrying you. Anyway, um, so we lived in, like, this farmhouse that was off of, like, a pretty big highway off a dirt, like, it was on a dirt road. And it was maybe, maybe half a mile from, like, where our house was up to the highway. Like, we would get dropped off at the beginning of the dirt road on the school bus. Like, it wasn't that big of a deal. Well, I got mad. What a surprise. I have a little bit of a temper. And I walked all the way up to the highway and just stood there. And I guess I thought I was going to hitchhike into town. I don't know what the plan was here. We just had an episode about that. That's a bad idea. It's not a good idea. Especially as a young child. Um. 
but my stepdad came up and, you know, he had followed it at a respectful distance because he's awesome. And I remember, like, he talked me down off of this and carried me back to the house on his shoulders because I was really tired from walking that far. Well, you were six years old. I was or really, yes. Small, full of rage. It goes away and then you're fine. So he carries me back inside the house and I'm like in such a good mood and he's in our kitchen and he goes to lift me off of his shoulders in the kitchen and sticks my head in the ceiling fan. (laughs) Was the ceiling fan going? Yes. Oh no. They were concerned I had a concussion and I got ice cream so I wouldn't go to sleep. There you go. That's the thing. Like, I'd be such a bad parent. So every time like Rosso gets out of the house and I have to like go catch him and carry him back, I'm like, you know what they do to pretty boys? They sell them into sex slavery when they leave the house. <laughs> like I can't be a parent. That's very clear at this point. <laughs> Rosso's my dog. For anybody out there wondering. Mm-hmm. Okay, are you ready to talk about the Sodder children? Yes. So ready. Okay, so George Sodder was born in Tula, Sardinia, in 1895, and he immigrated to the U.S. in 1908 so he was 13 years old where was that first thing you said tula sardinia is that like it's like near greece oh, italy okay. kind of it's like a it's a baby part of italy it, it sounded italy e, but i wasn't really sure we'll I talk about mussolini later if that one wants to give you any ideas as to what where this is looking forward to all it. right yep okay so he had an older brother that actually came with him all the way to ellis island and then immediately returned to italy leaving george all on his own so well, that's, that's a little weird. Weird. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So George found work in the Pennsylvania railroads, and he started carrying water and other supplies to the laborers. And then after a few years, he moved on to West Virginia. He worked there as a driver, and then he ended up launching his own trucking company, first off hauling dirt for other construction companies, and then later moving on to freight and coal. So he was making pretty good money at this point. Um, he visited a local store called the Music Box and met the owner's daughter. Her name was Jeannie, and she'd come over from Italy when she was three years old. Okay? Jeannie of the Music Box. Got Jeannie, it. <laughs> daughter of the Music Box, yes. They got married and had ten kids. No. Yes. In, in like, what, what, four years? or In, like, 20 years. Oh, okay. That's, yeah. That's probably Between better. 1923 and 1943, they had ten children. Are they Catholic? I mean, I, I mean, that's pretty typical know. for Catholic families, but... Like, Italy, that's crazy. Italy means Catholic, right? <laughs> yeah. Shelby, There's as some... a Reformed Catholic? I mean, I'm not a Reformed Italian, so. <laughs> that's valid. How do you transport that many kids? That's I, what I want to know. In a wagon? I don't fucking know. You have to have two cars. He's got a trucking company. They probably just put right. it on the back of it. <laughs> right, right, right. Just, just load up in the dump truck and head to the store. Okay, so then they ended up settling in Fayetteville, West Virginia, which is an Appalachian town, but they had a very active Italian immigrant community, so they, they really became active there. They were one of the most respected middle-class families around, and George had very strong opinions about everything. Like, people were super into him. They really valued his opinion, but he was always very reticent to talk about his, like, past in Italy. And he never explained what happened back in Italy to make him want to leave, and he never actually had any connection with his family still living there. Interesting. So suspicious, George. Weird. Yeah. Okay. So on the night before Christmas, 1945. All through the house. <laughs> okay. George and Jeannie and nine of their 10 children went to bed. Their oldest son was away at the army. Okay. Okay. So around 1 a.m., a fire broke out. George and Jeannie and four of their children escaped, but the other five children were never seen again. So pretty good odds, though, really. <laughs> 
<laughs> I feel like that's why you have 10 kids. Just so if there is a fire, there's a pretty good chance you'll still have a couple left. I still have 50% of my children. I'm just saying, if, as a parent and as a parent of some or of 10 children, I feel like probably one of your main priorities would be to get your children all out of that house. Yeah. Well, yeah so I don't ha- know if they're in different parts of the house and Hold maybe on. that was the reason, but yeah. that sounds crazy. How so, many can you carry at once? So, I mean, not carry. Just make sure that they're going and yeah. like getting out. Well, Fair they safely. were and the way that the house is kind of set up, we'll talk about a little bit, like there, there was an older kid in both of the kids' rooms. So it's oh, okay. kind of like you, as an older sibling, it's your responsibility to make sure people are taken care of. Yeah. You know what I mean? And George had tried to save them. Like, he actually broke into a window to get back into the house and sliced his arm. Like, he had to get tons of stitches and had to go to the emergency room for it. Um, But he couldn't see anything because the house was so on fire. Like, the -hmm. entire downstairs room, the living, the dining, kitchen, office, and his and his wife's bedroom were, like, completely destroyed and full of smoke. Do you know what started the fire? Well... I feel like you're going to answer all of these. All I have these so questions. many questions. I know. That's why I'm doing it this uh, way. Because you didn't want me to do this story. Because you didn't think it was going to be exciting enough. Mm. And now you're invested. Now oh you're invested. Suck it, nerd. Okay. So, this is what he knew. Two-year-old Sylvia, whose crib was in their bedroom, was safe outside with them. 17-year-old Marion was there. And two sons, 23-year-old John and 16-year-old George Jr., they had both left the upstairs bedroom they had shared. But the smoke was so bad, like, they actually lost a lot of their hair because of, like, it being singed in the fire. Dang. So, Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jeannie, and Betty. So, Jeannie's their, another one of their kids, not just his wife. Uh, they still had to be upstairs because they were split into two bedrooms on either side of the hallway. And they were separated by a staircase that was completely engulfed in flames. Like, there was no way he could go up to get them on the staircase. Gotcha. Okay. So he raced back outside because he'd gone inside to kind of see what was going on. And he hoped to reach the upstairs window using a ladder that they'd always kept propped up against the house. Because it's an older farmhouse, like, you need a ladder, right? Sure. The ladder's gone. The ladder is absolutely nowhere to be found. All right. So ladder rustlers. He had (laughs) two coal trucks there on the property that he thought he would drive up to the house and he could climb on top of to actually reach the windows. Mm Mm-hmm. But even though they'd functioned perfectly that day, neither one of them would start now. So he had two working vehicles that day on the property, and neither one would even start. Hmm. Fishy. Okay. So his daughter Marion sprinted to a neighbor's house to call the Fayetteville Fire Department, but no operator was there to answer. But it was Christmas. It was like a volunteer-type situation. Like, people justified it by that. A neighbor who saw the blaze made a call from a nearby tavern, but again, no operator responded, even though somebody, I mean, should have been on duty, right? No, you, I, you would think. I don't know how things work in Fayetteville. I'm going to go with maybe they just thought that Christmas was a respectful enough time that God wouldn't fuck with them. <laughs> maybe that's it. Okay, so the neighbor that saw it drove into town and tracked down Fire Chief F.J. Morris, who then initiated Fayetteville's version of a fire alarm, which is a phone tree. And even though the fire department was only two and a half miles away, the crew didn't arrive until 8 a.m. So, phone tree. Mm-hmm. Explain that. So, basically, like, I'm a firefighter. Jaybo's a firefighter. Shelby's a firefighter. I call you two. You two call two other people, four other people. And by that point, like... You ever played that game Telephone? Yeah, but it should work better for a phone tree. I don't know. My well, mom's church has it. <laughs> well, I'm saying you throw an address out there... 
Yeah. They, how long did it take him to respond to this? Seven hours. Yeah, it's because like 15 of those firefighters were like, hey, by the way, it's over on Elizabeth Avenue. It's like, hey, by the way, it's over on... I- but it's a small town. The Sodders are very predominant. Like, everybody knew where their house was. That's fine, I guess. I'm just saying. But it took them okay. seven hours? Seven for, like, hours. the whole team? Yeah, or just because the, for anybody? The house fire started at 1 a.m. Mm-hmm. And the fire department didn't show up until 8 a.m. That's At insane. which point the Sodders' house had been reduced to a smoking pile of Oh, ash. yeah. So, George and Jeannie assumed that five of their children were dead, but when they searched the grounds on Christmas Day, on Christmas fucking day, there were no trace of any remains. Hmm. So, Chief Morris suggested that the blaze had been hot enough to completely cremate the bodies. That sounds sketch as fuck and not true, but whatever. Yeah. A state police inspector combed the rubble and attributed the fire to faulty wiring. So George covered the basement of the house with five feet of dirt, intending to preserve the site as a memorial. The coroner's office issued five death certificates just before the first of the year and attributed the cause of death to fire or suffocation. But after a little bit, the Sodders really started to wonder if maybe their children were still alive because there was just a whole series of odd events leading up to the fire that didn't make sense to them. Okay? Yeah. In addition to the night of fire. Yeah. Other things. Okay. Okay. So the first thing that happened was that there had been a stranger who appeared at the home a few months earlier, back in the fall, asking about hauling work, like working for George's Trucking Company, right? When George was like, I don't really know, like that's that's not really something we're looking at hiring right now. The guy wandered to the back of the house, pointed to the two separate fuse boxes and said, this is going to cause a fire someday. George thought this was strange because he just had the wiring checked by the local power company, which pronounced everything in fine condition. Hmm. So around the same time, another man tried to sell the family life insurance and became irate when George declined to purchase any. He said, your goddamn house is going to go up in smoke. You and your children will be destroyed, and you are going to pay for the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini. So we come full circle to old Benito again. Right. So, <laughs> for those Wait, of you how- asking, Mussolini was an Italian dictator who created the fascist party in 1919 and held all the power in Italy as the country's prime minister from 1922 until 1943. Oh, that Mussolini. Right. He was an ardent socialist as a youth, and Mussolini followed his father's political footsteps, was expelled by the party for his support of World War I. As a dictator during World War II, he overextended his forces and was eventually killed by his own people. FYI, for those mm-hmm. of you wondering what yeah. we're talking about. Oh, you were talking about Dan Mussolini. Right, not Dan, <laughs> his cousin. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, George had been outspoken about his dislike for Mussolini, and he occasionally engaged in heated political arguments with other members of Fayetteville's Italian community. And at the time, he just didn't take the man's threats seriously. Like, I guess some people really had a hard-on for Mussolini. I didn't know this was a thing, but evidently it was. How many Italians are in Fayetteville, West Virginia? I guess a shit ton. It's like the Amish in Yoder, Kansas. Interesting. I feel like it's really easy to like Mussolini when you don't live in Italy anymore. Yeah. Like, at that point, it's just like, nah, he seems fine. Don't worry (laughs) about it. So, the older Sodder children that had survived also recalled just before Christmas, they'd noticed a man parked along U.S. Highway 21, intently watching the younger children as they came home from school. Like, got off the school bus and was watching the younger children. So, around 1230 on Christmas morning, after the children had opened a few presents and everyone was going to sleep, so, like, I guess 1230 in the morning... Uh, They got a random telephone call. Jeannie, the mom, rushed to answer it. 
and an unfamiliar female voice asked for an unfamiliar name. There was loud laughter in the background, and Janice said, you have the wrong number, and then they hung up. So when she went back to bed after answering the phone, she noticed that all of the downstairs lights were still on and all of the curtains open. The front door was unlocked. This is on the same night as the fire? Yeah. Oh. So she saw Marion, her daughter, sleeping on the sofa in the front room and assumed that the other kids were all upstairs in bed. So she turned out the lights, closed the curtain, locked the door, and returned to her room. She had just begun to fall asleep when she heard one sharp, loud bang on the roof and then a rolling noise. Which, I mean, acorns maybe? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if I heard a bang on the roof, I would probably get up and say something. I mean, yeah. if it's a like a loud, sharp bang, like acorns yeah. aren't loud or sharp. Yeah, that's generally. true. I mean, that's a pretty dull noise. So, an hour later, she was woken up again, but this time it was by, like, the heavy smoke coming into her room. So, she heard a bang, and an hour later, there was smoke filling. So, she also, Jeannie, the mom, couldn't understand how five children could just burn up in the fire and leave no bones, nothing. Um, She couldn't get any information from the police, from the coroner that had conducted the search and everything. So, she actually did some private experiments. Um, She was burning animal bones, of different sizes, like chicken bones, beef joints, pork chops, just to see, like, what would happen when the fire, like, when they sat in the fire for that long. Sure. And each time she was left with heaps of charred bone. Um, there were actually remnants of various household appliances that had been found in the house, but yet there were no remnants of her children. You so think, she thought that was really weird. Yeah, and you would think, I mean, one of five at least you would find. Well, so here's the thing. The bones were. That... Um, if you check with a crematorium, that bones remain after the bodies have been burnt for two hours at 2,000 degrees. Like, you have to burn them for longer than that at an actual crematorium. And the house was destroyed in 45 minutes. Hmm. So that's weird. Um, a telephone for repairman told the Sodders that their lines appeared to have been cut and were not actually burnt. So that's why they couldn't call anybody from the house. Uh, They realized that if the fire had been electrical and the result of faulty wiring, then the power would have been dead throughout the house. So that night, as they were running out of the house, how could the front room lights still be on? Yeah. Presumably. Yeah. Um, A witness came forward claiming that the night at the scene of the fire... He actually saw a man driving off with a block and tackle, which I guess is used for removing car engines. So could he have been jacking with the like the heavy duty coal trucks? I'm not I'm not real clear on what a block and tackle is, I guess. I copy pasted that to... from the internet. I don't really know what that means either. But right. like a guy saw like a witness at the scene saw a man with like what looked like heavy duty machinery driving away from the scene of the fire. Right. So well, and I mean, as far as disabling the trucks, that's easy. I mean, you can take a pair of pliers or a pair of like wire cutters out there, cut two wires, and the thing won't start. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no need to bring out the heavy duty machinery to deactivate yeah. these trucks. But so, a driver of a bus that had actually passed through Fayetteville late on Christmas Eve said that he'd seen some people throwing balls of fire at the house. And God then warlocks. Right? <laughs> and then, a few months later, after all the snow had melted, Sylvia, their daughter, actually found a small green rubber-like ball in, a, in the brush near the house. And George, recalling what his wife had said about the large thump on the roof before the fire, said it looked like a pineapple bomb hand grenade. 
Hmm. And there have been other people, like, there are pictures of it on the internet. It looks like an incendiary device. So, that's interesting. So, presumably some kind of a, a rubber ball soaked in some kind of a fuel and lit yeah. and then winged at the house. Yeah. Like a like a hmm. Molotov cocktail, only not in a bottle. Right. Only not a bottle. It's just a yeah. just rubber ball covered in kerosene or whatever. Yeah. So, the family later claimed that contrary to the fire marshal's conclusion, the fire had actually started on the roof, but they had no way of proving that. Right. I mean, you're going up against the fire marshal. Exactly. Yeah. So, then came the reports of sightings of the children. So, a woman, one of their neighbors, had claimed, and again, she knew these kids their whole life. She had claimed to see the missing children peering from a passing car while the fire was actually in progress. What? Yeah. And then another woman... How long did it take her to bring this up? I mean, a decently long time. You know what I mean? That seems like a thing that you would say pretty quickly. Pretty early said, on. Hey, these kids are dead. No, they're fucking not. No, they're fucking not. Okay, so another woman operating a tourist shop between Fayetteville and Charleston, which is about 50 miles west from where we're kind of talking, said that she saw the children the morning after the fire. She swears up and down that she had served them breakfast. There was a car with Florida license placed at the tourist court, which is like the hotel where they were staying. Mm-hmm. Um, a woman at a Charleston hotel saw the children's photographs in the newspaper a couple of weeks later and said she'd seen four of the five a week after the fire. The children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian descent. Um, in her statement, she said, I do not remember the exact date. However, the entire party did register at the hotel, stayed in one large room with several beds. They registered at about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused me to allow to talk to them. One of the men looked at me as he turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking. I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more. They left early the next morning. So... Hmm. In 1947, George and Jeannie sent a letter about the case to the Federal Bureau of Investigation and received a reply back from the J. Edgar Hoover. Oh, my goodness. I know. He responded saying, although I'd like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. Hoover's agents said they would assist if they could get permission from the local authorities, but the Fayetteville police and fire departments declined the offer. My issue with this, if the kids are taken across state lines, doesn't that become something in the jurisdiction That's of the FBI? That's automatically not their jurisdiction anymore, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as far as the local police is concerned. And, and on top of that, I mean... Why don't they want help? You're the FBI. Just do it. Just fucking do it. Ugh. But these these kids were declared dead. Yeah. So like they maybe were... they're like, you guys are just crazy. You're not seeing these these kids wandering around. That's just, yeah. you know, it's a waste of time. Maybe that's what they're thinking. Maybe it's crazy. I mean, so definitely with all the instances of people seeing them. That's, yeah. I think after that, I would be like, okay, we can look into it. So yep. And then the Fayetteville police and fire departments completely shut down the offer from the FBI. They said, we're good. We got this. Don't worry. What ifs? We're, we're good. We're good. Thanks for the offer, though. No, those, okay. those kids are real dead. I got paper on my desk saying so. <laughs> yeah, I found no remains of them, but I have this paperwork that says so. Okay. Next, the Sodders turned to a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley, who discovered that an insurance who discovered that the insurance salesman who'd actually threatened George was a member of the coroner's jury that deemed the fire accidental. Ooh. 
Well, that seems like a conflict of interest. A little bit. Um, he also heard a curious story from a Fayetteville minister about F.J. Morris, you know, the fire chief mm-hmm. that investigated all of this. Although Morris had claimed that no remains were found, he supposedly confided to his minister that he discovered a heart in the ashes. He then hid it inside of a lockbox and buried it at the scene. So here's the thing. We have no bones, but we found a heart right. at the all, scene. All the bones combusted, right. but this, the soft tissue is just yeah. hanging out over here. So Tinsley yeah. persuaded Morris to show them the spot, and together they dug up the box and took it straight to a local funeral director. He poked it, he prodded it, and concluded that it was actually a beef liver untouched by the fire. So this Morris guy's a real fucking weirdo. Yeah, pretty much. So you're... Hold on. Yep. So you're a fire marshal, and you can't identify a heart from a liver. Well, so after, the Sodders actually heard rumors that the fire chief had told others that the contents of the box had not been found at the fire at all, that he had buried the beef liver in the rubble in the hope of finding any remains would placate the family enough to make them stop the investigation. Dick. Hmm. Yep. So over the next few years, the tips and the leads kept coming in, and George would investigate all of them. He was traveling all the time. Like, it, he never stopped looking for his children. He genuinely believed they were still alive. Um, so he saw a newspaper photo of school children in New York City and was convinced that one of them was his daughter, Betty. He drove all the way to Manhattan in search of the child, but in the end of it, like, in the end of everything, her parents refused to even speak to him. Hmm. He wasn't allowed to talk to her or anything. So well, maybe it wasn't her. Well, I mean, maybe it wasn't. Because then but it was like a weirdo sad. just like looking for your yeah. daughter. Like that's weird. Well, yeah, that's weird. But at the same time, what's the he, harm in letting him talk to her? Yeah, just be like, hey, I can see now up close that you are not Betty. Have a nice day. I'm yeah, gonna drive back home. Yeah, that's true. So in August of 1949, the Sodders decided to mount a new search at the fire scene and brought in a Washington D.C. pathologist named Oscar B. Hunter. The excavation was very thorough, and they uncovered several small objects. Damaged coins, a partially burned dictionary. Yep, a book didn't even burn all the way. Huh. But bones, on the other hand. Yep, bones and all the children bits gone. Um, And they also discovered several shards of vertebrae. So, Hunter sent the bones to the Smithsonian Institute, which issued the following report. The human bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual. How many children were in the fire, guys? Five. Five. Since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been between 16 or 17 years of age. The top limit of age would be about 22 since the Sintra, which normally fuse at 23, are still unfused. On this basis, the bones show greater skeletal maturation than one would expect for a 14-year-old boy which was the oldest solder child that went missing. It is, however, possible, although not probable, for a boy 14 and a half years old to show 16 to 17-year-old maturation. So they're like, it really probably not the oldest solder child. Also, the vertebrae showed no evidence that they'd ever been exposed to a fire. And it's very, very strange that no other bones were found in the allegedly careful excavation of the basement of the house. So, noting that the house burned for only about a half an hour or so, it's 
The Smithsonian said that one would expect to find the full skeletons of all five children rather than just four vertebrae. The bones, the report concluded, were most likely in the supply of dirt that George used to fill the basement to create the memorial for his children. I was about to ask you, like, where the fuck did this vertebrae yeah. came, come from? Like, yeah. If it wasn't from the kids. So the Smithsonian report prompted two hearings at the Capitol in Charleston, after which Governor Oki L. Patterson, which sounds like a legit governor. <laughs> sounds, like the, <laughs> sounds like the mayor of Mayberry. Ol' Oki. That's Opie, Shelby. He's not the mayor. I mean, maybe by the Maybe time by the show, now. If the show ended, I don't know what the hell happened to him. Ron Howard, did you ever become president of Mayberry? President? President of Mayberry. Of Mayberry, okay. Yep. <laughs> it's a sovereign nation now. It <laughs> is. Okay, so the governor and the police state state police superintendent told the Sodders their search was hopeless and they declared the case co- closed. So there was nothing more that their government was going to do to help them find their children at this point. So undeterred, George and Jeannie erected a billboard along Route 16 and passed out flyers offering a $5,000 reward for information leading to the recovery of their children. A letter arrived from a woman in St. Louis saying the oldest girl, Martha, was in a convent there. Another tip came in from Texas where a patron in a bar overheard incriminating conversation about a long-ago Christmas Eve fire in West Virginia. Some other people in Florida claimed the children were staying with a distant relative of Jeannie's. Why the fuck they'd be with a distant distant relative of their mother and no one told her? I don't know. Right. $5,000, please. Yes, please. (laughs) So George traveled around the country again to investigate each and every lead, always returning home without any answers. So, this goes on for years, right? Mm-hmm. In 1968, more than 20 years after the fly- fire, Jeannie went to get the mail, and she found an envelope addressed only to her. It was postmarked in Kentucky, but it had no return address. Inside was a photo of a man in his mid-20s. On its back side was a cryptic handwritten note that said, Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, Illy Boys, A90132 or 35. And she and George could not deny the resemblance to their son, Louis, who was nine at the time of the fire. There were obvious similarities. They both had dark curly hair, dark brown eyes, but they also had the same straight nose and the same upward tilt of the left eyebrow. Like, you can look online and find this picture and they put it next to the picture of the little boy on the billboard and these people look exactly alike. Like, mm. I would think that they were the same person. Right. I thought you were just describing kind of an Italian man for a moment there. Well, but. I mean, that too. <laughs> but, I mean, they look eerily similar. Okay. So, I'll, I'll buy it. Yep. Um. So after they received this letter, they again hired a private detective and they sent him to, to Kentucky to look this guy up. And they never actually heard from the private detective ever again. What? Yep. So either he's a fake private detective that just ran off with their money, or he was murdered. I choose to believe the latter. I think he's murdered. Yeah. So the Sodders feared that if they published the letter or the name of the town on the postmark, they might actually harm their son. Instead, they amended the billboard to include the updated image of Lewis, air quotes around Lewis, and hung an enlarged version over their fireplace. Because that's all they had of their kids. Time is running out for us, George said in an interview. But we only want to know. If they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced of that. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. So, after this interview, George actually died a year later. And he never knew what actually happened to his kids. That's sad. Isn't that so sad? That's, that's a big bummer, yeah. 
So Jeannie ended up erecting a fence around their property and kind of like the Winchester house, like she added rooms onto the house. Mm. Like it kind of got weird and puzzly and it just, I mean, they were a well-off family, so they could afford to do it, but she just kept adding on. And people were saying it was like a layer between her and the outside world. Hmm. Um, Another fun fact is since the fire, she had only ever worn black. She never wore any other clothes, like colored clothes. She just wore black clothing. Damn. Yep. That's dedication. And she continued to do so until her own death in 1989. And it was only then that the billboard finally came down. So since the, I mean, when did they put that up? In the early 60s? Yeah, I think that's what you said. So 20 some odd years, they had this billboard along the highway with their kids' faces on it. Hmm. And they never found them. And they out. never found them. Yes. So her children, her living children, mm-hmm. and her grandchildren continued the investigation and came up with theories of their own. Like one really popular theory that you'll see out there is that the local mafia had actually tried to recruit George and he had declined. Like maybe he had been involved with them before he left Italy. Or maybe his family was involved with the mafia, and it, it finally came back to kind of haunt him. But so, he didn't look into it. I feel like if that was the case, like, he would be like, hey, well, I have this past. Let's look into it. Maybe this, these are the people. Maybe he did, and it never came to light. Yeah, like, just no one knew about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, there's also possibly that someone had tried to extort money from him, and he'd refused, and they took their revenge out on the kids. Another theory is that the children were kidnapped by someone they knew, uh, someone who came in through the unlocked door, told them about the fire, and offered them to take them someplace safe, and then just never brought them home again. Which would explain them hanging out in the back of a car watching the fire, but I'm still skeptical of that particular yeah. account of all this. Because again, yeah. you're a neighbor, you're going to know that those kids died or whatever in this fire, air quotes, mm-hmm. and... That would be my first thought is, no, I I just saw them, like, during the fire. They were in so-and-so's car or whatever, because it's a small mm-hmm. community, too. I mean, you, you would think that there'd be enough to go off of there if somebody actually did see that happen. So I'm I'm still calling bullshit on that lady. Well, and then, like, she said that she saw all five in the back of a car, and then the other two women both said they only saw four kids out of five. Right. So that's a little iffy to me. I don't really know. Um, okay, so maybe the kids didn't survive the night, and if they had, then they survived for decades after, and if it really was Lewis in that photograph, right, they had actually failed to contact their parents that entire time. Like, if you're a 14-year-old boy, how, what are they doing to you that you just can't contact your parents? Like, you can't figure out a way this far down to get a hold of your parents. Well, and after decades, too, it's like, even if they had kidnapped them... Yeah. Why wouldn't, I mean... Kidnappers don't have that kind of dedication. They're not going to hold on to you for that long. I mean, Stockholm Syndrome, maybe? Maybe, where they where the kids decide that it was, like, their decision to go with them or whatever. Yeah. And then, and then they're ashamed, maybe, that their parents had tried to find them for so long or whatever. But I don't I don't buy any of that shit. That, it's that so doesn't crazy. sound right to me. Maybe the kids were like, hey, it's way too crowded in this place. There's, That's probably... There's right. 12 people. This is insane. If, this if, is dumb. If five of us leave, they probably won't even notice. Honestly. Right. Well, yeah. and I mean, here's the thing. Is if you're a little enough kid and these people come in and they take you from your family and they set you up with this whole other life, like... Do you know your parents are really still alive? Like, were your parents involved? Do you want your other siblings to get hurt? Like, 
I mean, there is a level of self-preservation, but also, like, I would care about my parents that way. My siblings and everything, too. So, and some of them were young enough. Maybe they just don't even remember. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jennifer doesn't even remember going to Disney World, for Christ's sake. Right, exactly. Right. Maybe that's why they didn't call their parents, because their kidnappers were like, hey, if you never talk to your parents again, Disney World. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. That sounds pretty fucking neat. Okay, so there is one surviving child left, Sylvia, who was two at the time. And she genuinely does not believe that her siblings perished in the fire. To this day, she visits crime sleuthing websites. I mean, you know, all those, all those. And she engages with people online still interested in her family's mystery. And when I was looking this up, like, Sylvia is out there. Like, you can email Sylvia right now. She is on these forums. She's active. She's, you know, learning about the internet. It's super exciting. Um, but right. she, so, so if we had a hot tip for her, we could get a hold of her we, You can get a hold of her. Now. Yes. Well, the thing about it now is that all those kids are dead, too, probably. Probably. Like, most likely. Yeah. They're, either that or they're so old that they're not going to find anything unless they were still alive, yeah, she's, I'm assuming. she's in her early 70s. Yeah. So... Unlike Jennifer, she does have memories of that night. And she says that the first memories of her life were from that night. She was two years old. She remembers the sight of her father just bleeding all over the place. Because remember, he sliced his arm open real good on yeah. the window. And just, like, the fi- the sounds of the fire and, like, her family crying and screaming. And to this day, she is just bitterly disappointed because she's still not able to figure out why and what's going on. How so. do you remember that stuff at two? Yeah. I think it's like stories. She was told stories and she's like It's kind of implanted. Implanted oh, yeah. in her yeah. head. Like probably. Or maybe, you know, you're just a weirdo that doesn't remember things. Or I mean, maybe it's like it was so traumatic that maybe she's like still remembers stuff. Yeah. But I just think a two year old, like you don't remember anything when you're two. I would, you think might... of, I would think at that age, the more traumatic it was, the more likely it'd be that it was blocked out. Yeah, maybe. maybe. I mean it it probably was like she was young because it would be like Eliza, like my two year old remembering something that happened Mm -hmm. and i think it's just it's family folklore at this point that you know dad tried to go save the kids and slice his arm open and well yeah how many many times has she heard the story in her lifetime how many times has she had to talk about it in interviews you know what i mean or seen it on tv or read about it you know like everybody's story is going to be different and hers is just a conglomeration of everything else that she's ever heard seen or read right so i think it's really sad for sure. Um, there are pictures of the billboard all over the internet. You can find the pictures of Lewis. Um, like of older Lewis. Of older Lewis. The, the comparison shot yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's how, really interesting. How weird would it be if that wasn't their kid and they had that picture blown up <laughs> and in their living room for that long or whatever? Uh, yeah, that would be weird. That, uh, yeah. I just I just want to believe that it wasn't him. Like, obviously these kids are dead. I mean, that, those vertebrae probably belong to that 14-year-old or whatever. But this one strapping young Italian man in Kentucky <laughs> is framed above their fireplace of these crazy fucking people that have been looking for these kids for so long. Obviously. I, I genuinely don't. I don't think the kids died in the fire. No, I really I, don't. I think it's ridiculous to think that bone would, would. Yeah. So if no, you guys no <laughs> ever yeah. read, there's a book called the smoke gets in your eyes and the author actually has a, like, vlog series, I think? Like, a video blog type thing on YouTube. I don't remember the name for the life of me. cannot remember her name. But she's so interesting. And she's actually... It's called Ask a Mortician. That's what it's called. And she's super fucking funny and great. And you should look it up. But she talks about, I think, this case at one point about how the bones would not... I mean, the bones would still be there. Yeah. 
I just feel like that's Fire Marshal School Day One. Well, I mean, it's the forties. Well, yeah, and but... I well, but in that case, like, are the are they all just really fucking bad at their jobs, or is it a bigger conspiracy? Or is it a big cover up? Yeah, which is right. always the question. That I'm, is the question. So I'm like, yeah, it's the forties, but bones and fire have existed for a real long time. So yeah. we we had time to figure that one out. Well, and if old mom is in the kitchen burning fucking pork bones, and it's still there, like. You know this. I know this. That was like, actually a, that was actually a voodoo ritual. It had nothing to do with finding. Well, it did yeah. have something to do with finding the kids, but but not the way <laughs> not the way you're thinking. It wasn't a scientific as you believe. So I don't know. I mean, I I think it's a big mystery. It's really crazy, and it's not. It's obviously not paranormal. It's a little true crime. It's just a little bit weird. So I thought you guys would like hearing about it. I just don't like that. There's no like real ending. Like it makes me annoyed. Right, even more so if those kids lived through it and they lived into, like, an older age or whatever, they, they were buried under, what, assumed, assumed names? I mean, yeah, how... Yeah, it, It's just that the thought of them being out there and existing and just adopting whatever new identity they had to to, to get by is just crazy to me. Well, and what's going to happen? I mean, like, with everything that's happened with the Golden State Killer, right? About how he's found because his cousin decided to, like, 23 and me that shit. Right. Are we, <laughs> I mean, are these people going to find out they're related? And in like 10 years, are we going to actually find out that like the Sodder kids had kids and they didn't actually right, die? Had families or something like that. I mean, it's, yeah. it's very possible. I've actually called all my family and told them not to do that because I've got some stuff I don't want coming out. So. Yeah. I think you have to mark the box of like, if you are, are worried about being convicted of a crime, like know that this goes somewhere in mm. some things. Well, yeah, I'm not doing it. I'm worried that, you know, well, my cousin's going to do it. And it's yeah. just like, oh, that's the guy. Oh, <laughs> shit. That's the barnyard rapist. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they do rape kids on cows, Shelby. You should be all right. Oh. Great news. Yeah. I just want you to know. I'm pretty sure. Okay, guys. <laughs> uh, do we have any other questions about solder kids? Anybody? I don't, I don't no? think so. Okay. No, I'm I'm all set up aside from all the other questions that So many unanswered questions this yeah. evening. I'm really sorry about that. Sorry. Um if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, I'm probably not gonna be able to answer them because no one knows what happened <laughs> to these poor kids. But hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or at QueenCityCreeps at gmail dot com and we will try and answer them as best as we can. I'll take a crack at it. Perfect. Um, well, we are glad you listened to us and we hope you have a great night. Thanks. Bye.